Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. Today, we are extraordinarily honored to be joined by colleagues from Brown University Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Joining us today, we have Drs. Asim Sharma, Vrinda Trivedi, and Greg Salber. Folks, welcome to the show. Really excited to learn from you. Would you mind telling the audience who you are? Hi, I'm Brinda Trivedi. I'm a PGY6 at Brown University Cardiology Fellowship. I have a prior background in critical care, and I am interested in practicing non-invasive cardiology with a special focus in critical care. Hey, everyone. I'm Asim. Like Brinda, I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows and one of the chief fellows along with her. My interest is in electrophysiology, where I hope to be pursuing fellowship in the next two years. And uh, I'm Greg Salber. I'm one of the second-year fellows here. Also going to go into non-invasive with a focus on cardiac imaging. Asim, Verinda, Greg, welcome, welcome. It is so nice to meet you today. So let's just dive right in. But before we do, can you take us to your favorite part of Providence, Rhode Island, or even tell us a little bit more about Providence, Rhode Island, so we can get a good feel for where you guys live and where you practice your craft? Sure. So if you guys have never been to Providence, it's a beautiful, charming, small New England town. It's full of amazing restaurants, activities, beautiful historical sites. It's a college town, so it's home to Brown University. But we also have Johnson & Wales, Providence College, the Rhode Island School of Design. It has something for everyone, including kids and young families. But Providence and Rhode Island in general, it's known as the ocean state. And that's for good reason. The coastline and the water are probably the two things that Rhode Islanders love the most. And us cardiology fellows, especially in the summer, we love to go out to the water, sometimes with our attendings and hang out on the ocean. I don't think you can be a cardiology attending in Rhode Island without owning a boat. So fellows boating night is a summer tradition in our program where our attendings take us out on the water and we kind of anchor off uh, off somewhere and, and just hang out and talk cardiology on a boat. So in true Rhode Island fashion, we're going to grab a few refreshing beverages with us. We'll take you guys out on a boat. We'll anchor off Potter's Cove, which is one of our favorite spots uh, off of Prudence Island. It's an awesome area, great spot to fish, kayak, and we'll hang out and talk some cardiology. 
You guys, this sounds amazing. Thank you so much for inviting us to partake in such an incredible part of being a Brown uh, Cardiology Fellow. We really love this tradition. And let's do what Dan and I love doing when we are boating on pristine waters. Let's talk some cardiology. What do you guys have for us? We will kick things off. So to start, this is a uh, 75-year-old gentleman who had a history of hypertension, diabetes, and former tobacco abuse with a recent diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who originally presented to one of our neighboring community hospitals with chest pain. Now, his chest pain was pretty typical. It started about eight hours prior to his presentation while he was working in his workshop at home. It was classic in nature with substernal chest pain features and radiation into the left arm associated with diaphoresis. Curiously, though, it was not worsened by physical exertion, and after his symptoms did not abate with rest for several hours, he then presented to the hospital. His past medical history was notable for hypertension, diabetes, depression, former tobacco use, and the aforementioned hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. For medications, he was on citalopram 40 milligrams, diltiazem extended release 180 milligrams, glipizide 2.5 milligrams, metoprolol succinate 25, and nefazidone 200 milligrams. He had no allergies. His family history was notable for uh, multiple grandparents with a prior history of MI, the details of which were not fully clear, but no family history of heart failure or sudden cardiac death. He originated from South County, Rhode Island, which is really down far on the coast south of Providence. He's married, a retired former accountant who had a two-pack year smoking history in his 20s. He was a social alcohol user and did not use any form of drugs. So Greg, it sounds like this patient who is coming in predominantly with chest pain of recent onset. We think about the problem representation, which is the epidemiology, clinical syndrome, and duration of symptoms to really start building out our differential diagnosis. And this is an older man with a number of cardiovascular atherosclerotic risk factors of hypertension, diabetes, tobacco smoking, and new onset chest pain that's going on really for the past eight hours is highly concerning for plaque rupture, acute coronary syndrome. But we should certainly widen our differential here, especially when there's a, a diagnosis of HCM. And I wonder, you know, he's 75 years old and HCM is a genetic cardiomyopathy. You'd wonder, is, you, you certainly have patients that are diagnosed with true HCM later in life because there is definitely a variability in expressivity and variable penetrance for even within the same family. And so that's certainly not outside the realm of possibility, and we see this all the time. But I also would wonder about HCM phenocopies that may present later in life, and amyloid is certainly something that would be on my mind as well, especially because, like many other things, can also cause some degree of microvascular dysfunction, increased LVEDP, and just decreased coronary perfusion from a type 2 process as well, as well as some other phenocopies of HCM. There's a wide differential diagnosis here, but right now, the immediate thing to not miss given his risk factors and his presentation is acute coronary syndrome. And then also anybody coming in with chest pain, we cannot miss the other life-threatening causes of chest pain, right? Like pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, aortic dissection, esophageal rupture. So there's certainly an urgency to triage this patient, evaluate this patient hemodynamically, and figure out the first steps in that differential diagnosis. But stepping back, he certainly has risk factors for acute coronary syndrome. And we need to delve deeper into this history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy whether it's true HCM or a phenocopy that could present similarly. I want to throw it back to you and ask you, like, do we know any more about how the patient got this diagnosis of HCM and how confident we can be that that's what we're looking at? So to answer your question, 
his diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy had, had in fact been quite recent. In, in fact, was only made by ultrasound only about two weeks ago. Previously to his presentation, he had really been a gentleman who had only seen his PCP for once every six months, once every 12 months for routine management of his chronic conditions. But in the preceding few months, he had been experiencing some progressive dyspnea uh, without any other heart failure symptoms. For that reason, he was actually referred to a local cardiologist who did an evaluation on him and ultimately ordered an ultrasound. So that ultrasound demonstrated a um, general concentric LVH with a really prominent uh, septal hypertrophy. His posterior wall was 14 millimeters thick and his septal thickness was 23 millimeters. So at that time, you know, um, when we have that degree of septal thickness, we see what is uh, fairly common, which is actually a resting left ventricular outflow gradient. At rest, this was 35 millimeters of mercury. And when provoked by Valsalva, this turned out to be 83 millimeters of mercury. His uh, LV function was hyperdynamic with an EF of 78%. And with that LVOT gradient, he was found to have systolic anterior motion or SAM of the mitral valve with resulting mild to moderate mitral regurgitation. Importantly, at that time, we had some strain imaging done, which was not consistent with an apical sparing pattern. So we had all of this knowing his case while he was en route from this other hospital to our own institution. Wow, guys, this is, sounds like a very impressive slam dunk case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a with the intraventricular septum thickness being over two centimeters. That's pretty profound. Given that the normal septal thickness is just one and over 1.5 would be severe, this is quite super severe. And I definitely appreciate why he had that resting gradient, but also that provoke gradient to 83 millimeters of mercury. We definitely talked a lot about this kind of physiology in our HCM series. So you could definitely check that out. We deep dived with that seriously hard, but, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the physiology today, but also this association of systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve where that mitral valve leaflet gets in the way of the LVOT. And remember that LVOT is how we are ejecting all of our blood flow out to the brain and vital organs. And when you have this floppy mitral valve apparatus in the way as we're ejecting, you could see and imagine why that would cause a lot of hemodynamic compromise in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and why their left ventricle would have to work further overdrive to get out the blood to the places that it needs to get the blood to. So very impressive and also interesting that it presents at this age of 75, but I'm glad that back two weeks ago, they were able to make the diagnosis and put together the echo findings with the patient's symptoms and potentially start treating him. Yeah. And Greg, another thing you said about the echo piqued my interest because we're thinking thick LV walls and thick LV walls are either in response to hemodynamic afterload and it's essentially remodeling to deal with that wall stress or it's an abnormal increase in thickness either because of HCM or infiltration or or something or, or inflammation in the case of myocarditis or other things. And so this patient with a wall that is more than 20 millimeters, I think the likelihood that this is remodeling from hypertensive heart disease or athlete's heart is quite low. I think this is certainly going to be a pathologic situation. But I'm still curious about potential phenocopies, which can present similarly to HCM, and specifically something like TTR cardiac amyloidosis, which unlike AL amyloid, can present more like HCM in having asymmetric hypertrophy and get to thicker walls before the patient gets symptomatic. Unlike AL amyloid, when the patient becomes symptomatic, typically with a lower wall thickness because of the toxic effects of the light chains themselves. But in this case, you mentioned that the strain pattern was not typical of 
amyloidosis or the decreased global longitudinal strain with apical sparing. And we discussed this in our amyloid series, in our WashU episode. And so that's an important thing to see. And the typical finding of HCM is going to be decreased strain or deformation in the basal, anterior, anteroseptal, and septal walls. And so this, you know, you can imagine that a patient with Fabry's disease, which is another important phenocopy, can have decreased strain in the infralateral walls. And so, you know, the strain pattern can be useful and definitely additive to how we conceive this patient. But I think what we know right now is this is certainly pathological and not at remodeling to deal with stress. And I think HCM is becoming more and more likely on the differential diagnosis here. So Amit, that was a great point. I think one of the other things I would point out, and, and like like you're zeroing in on, this guy's in his seventh decade of life. So it's uh, pretty late to see a presentation for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, though you could see it. And so it's great to focus in on other phenocopies of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I think one of the other important things is that in, in looking at his EKG, his QRS amplitude throughout the EKG shows increased voltage. So typically in, in infiltrative diseases, amyloid, you, you may see low voltage that's discordant with the amount of hypertrophy that you see on echocardiography. So it's, it's also an important point to take a look at the EKG and see that actually the amplitude is uh, higher on this patient's EKG, and that, that argues against uh, a phenocopy. That's a great point, Asim, and we definitely need to look at the EKG. And absolutely, that the, the abnormal infiltrating stuff in infiltrative heart disease isn't actually contributing to electricity generation. And so oftentimes, you'll have normal or low voltage. In amyloidosis, 50% can have low voltage, and, and that's a useful feature to take a look at. 10% in amyloid can have high voltage. Uh, and so it's certainly unlikely that a patient will have high voltages if the patient has cardiac amyloidosis. And really, that discrepancy is useful. So essentially, wall thickness that is out of proportion to voltages in the EKG is a useful parameter to look at also. So thank you for bringing up that really important point, Asim. So some of the other uh, useful information that we were able to dig out of his chart is, you know, despite carrying a, a chart diagnosis of hypertension, if you went back through his case, he actually had never really had documented elevated blood pressure, uh, nor had he ever been on any antihypertensives. In fact, he was really on, on very few cardiac medications whatsoever, despite his abundance of risk factors. As Asim had mentioned earlier, uh, the patient's EKG from his Sentinel presentation was notable for a sinus rhythm with rare PVCs, voltage uh, that was high as opposed to low, and a uh, poor R-wave progression throughout the procordium with Q waves in V1 and V2. Uh, He additionally had evidence for interventricular conduction delay with a widened QRS. So the cardiologist who had been managing his case down in South County started him on low-dose metoprolol and low-dose diltiazem. And with that single intervention, the patient's exertional dyspnea actually resolved entirely, and he was able to resume his normal activities uh, with any degree of uh, exertion without any symptoms whatsoever. He was set up with a Holter monitor and intent to follow up with cardiology after that was completed. Great. That was such a great example of management or medical management for HCM with LVOT obstruction. And earlier in our history, when we did our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy series, we talked about the four Ps of prevention in managing patients with HCM. And so there is number one, prevent symptoms. Number two, prevent stroke. Number three, prevent sudden cardiac death in the patient. And then number four, prevent sudden cardiac death in the family. And so here we say a lot of the symptoms predominantly are coming from the LVOT obstruction. 
And so to decrease and mitigate the obstruction, we use negative inotropes, avoid positive inotropes. We make sure the patient has adequate fluid and potentially avoiding diuretics, avoid afflow-reducing agents. And if medical therapy is insufficient, then consider structural therapy, like either a septal myectomy or alcohol septal ablation. However, a patient can certainly have symptoms in the absence of LVOT obstruction from the cardiomyopathy itself. And so in uh, some patients, advanced heart failure therapies like heart transplantation may need to be considered. And so in this situation, the patient had a, a substantial gradient with Valsalva, and you mitigated that, successfully treated that with negative inotropes, negative chronotropic agents, beta blocker and calcium channel blocker, and symptomatically the patient improved. So that's terrific. Moving forward, we may also consider uh, how do you prevent a stroke? Because these patients, if they have atrial fibrillation, warrant anticoagulation regardless of CHADS VASC. In terms of preventing sudden cardiac death, an important source of morbidity and mortality are VTVF and sudden cardiac death. And so I need to risk uh, stratify the need for implantable cardiac defibrillators. And then preventing sudden cardiac, cardiac death in the family, because this is a autosomal dominant genetic cardiomyopathy, since our patient is having this diagnosis, doing a genetic panel on this patient, identifying the mutation, and then screening first-degree relatives with longitudinal surveillance of patients with a positive genetic mutation is an important aspect of overall care. So prevent symptom, prevent stroke, prevent sudden cardiac death in the patient, and prevent sudden cardiac death in the family. And so really terrific job taking care of this patient. Thankfully, he responded to our medical management here. So that's the diagnosis of HCM and management thereof in this patient in the very recent past. Why don't we bring it back to the chest when the patient is coming in now? And of course, chest pain can be a cardinal manifestation of HCM from the LVOT obstruction itself and decreased coronary perfusion pressure because of elevated LVEDP also. So what did we find for the current presentation? So if we pick up at our community hospital's emergency department, our gentleman has now presented with chest pain. On exam, his vitals were notable for a heart rate of 95 a blood pressure of 115 over 76, a respiratory rate of 20, and oxygen saturation of 98% on room air. He was an elderly fit gentleman who appeared to be in mild distress. Uh, his neck exam was notable for the absence of an elevated JVD, carotids were without bruise. His cardiovascular exam was regular rate and rhythm. He had a normal S1 and an S2 that was slightly blunted by a pretty harsh two out of six systolic murmur uh, across the precordium without radiation. His distal pulses were intact and strong. His pulmonary exam was notable for clear lungs, easy work of breathing without any adventitious sounds. Abdomen was soft, non-tender, non-distended, and he was warm and well-perfused without the evidence of any peripheral edema. Greg, now is a great time to talk about the physical exam findings that can be expected in someone with a dynamic LVOT obstruction. The two that I wanted to highlight would be a bifid pulse and the typical systolic crescendo-decrescendo murmur. The mechanism behind the bifid pulse is that LVOT obstruction is dynamic. At the onset of systole, there is initially a brisk upstroke of the aortic waveform. And ultimately, as systole progresses, there's progressive obstruction that leads to a typical spike and dome configuration of the aortic waveform. And that's responsible for the bifid pulse that's described in this condition. This pulse is also known as pulses bifarians. The second feature is the systolic crescendo-decrescendo murmur. So the murmur associated with LVOT obstruction is described as a harsh crescendo-decrescendo murmur. It is impacted by a number of provocative hemodynamic maneuvers. Valsalfa, for example, can decrease the preload and make the murmur louder. Squatting can increase the preload and the afterload and make the murmur softer. 
And lastly, hand grip can increase the afterload and make the murmur softer. Brenda, that was fantastic. And this is, again, I feel like we're a broken record because we say this almost every episode, but understanding the basic hemodynamic or an, an anatomical setup of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or any cardiovascular condition really unlocks a lot of things that we see on history, physical, echo, et cetera. And these are great examples. And you're really bringing this out with uh, what we would be looking for in the physical exam. But I would just add another point. Whenever we have a patient, we make a diagnosis and we start a therapy for that diagnosis. Not only is that therapy going to hopefully help the patient, but it's also really sometimes adding to the diagnostic tool. So for example, if you started somebody on a therapy for, uh, you know, cardiogenic shock, you thought they had slam dunk cardiogenic shock and you put them on dobutamine because you thought that was appropriate and their clinical course takes a disastrous turn for the worse, that would let you know that maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe it's not just cardiogenic shock from pump failure, but maybe there's a valvular abnormality that I have to interrogate a little bit further. And so similarly with this patient, you know, he came in two weeks ago, it sounded like clear cut hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We started him on very good medications for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And indeed he did have improvement at first, but then he comes back to the emergency room two weeks later. It gets us thinking, is there something else involved? Is this a new process? Because everything should have gotten better. And so one of the things that I would also look on the physical exam for is I got his contractility slowed down, so I'm basically allowing him more filling time. So his LV cavity size before systole is going to be larger. And that will hopefully help out with the dynamic obstruction and also potentially help out with the systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, SAM. So it won't be as annoyingly in the way. But at the same time, we know that there are other situations that make hypertrophic cardiomyopathy worse in terms of obstruction, such as states of dehydration, etc. And I'd be looking for evidence of signs of dehydration for sure in the history and physical, asking him if he had any viral illnesses lately or has been drinking a lot lately or has been just feeling dry or fatigued or malaise, etc. But also on physical exam, I'd be looking for evidence of that. And it didn't sound like this person has this in particular, but these would be things that I'd be thinking of in the context of, of him with this recent diagnosis of HCM with appropriate therapy and now coming again just two weeks later. Thanks to everyone. That was a, a great breakdown of the physical exam and some of the pathophys that's involved here. As we go along, his course becomes a little bit more illuminating, however, when we got his EKG. So whereas his EKG from two weeks ago had been notable for uh, interventricular conduction delay, his EKG on this presentation was notable for a new left bundle branch block with some secondary ST changes, uh, and notably for some deep and broad T-wave inversions in the left precordial leads, uh, which represented a marked change from where we were before. Uh, importantly, when looking at this, although there were some ST changes, they did not meet the modified Scarbasa criteria. So Greg, you mentioned the T-wave inversions and the later precordial leads. Usually when you have a left bundle branch block, you'll see the T-waves going in the opposite direction of the major deflection of the QRS. And in some of these leads, especially V4, you can see those T-wave inversions and the deep T-wave inversions that are pretty atypical of your usual left bundle branch block. And just something to keep in mind, I don't know if that kind of triggers anything in your mind, but definitely unusual and not what you usually see in a typical left bundle. Yeah, absolutely. And for the audience, just definitely take a look at the blog so you can take a look at this EKG. But these T-wave inversions are markedly different from the patient's baseline. And I would wonder, is this just excess strain in a patient that already has hypertrophy? Apical HCM can certainly present like this. Other apical pathologies like stress cardiomyopathy can present like this. Ischemia, neurological T-waves, right? Somebody who's having a stroke can present like this. So there's certainly a whole differential here. 
But all that's telling me is that there's something different going on with this patient's repolarization. And as in association with his chest pain, the level of urgency in my mind is higher and higher. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, in addition to the T wave changes, we have this new left bundle branch block when a patient coming in with chest pain. So again, we have to obviously put that all in context of this patient, but there's definitely something going on with the myocardium and the conduction system and further assessment. You know, now that we know it's not a STEMI, it's not making the criteria, we don't need to jump to the cath lab with this particular patient. It's time to dig a little deeper into the labs and data and try to figure out what's going on with this patient's heart because it's definitely crying out for help. Sure thing. So as the patient's labs came in, uh, his BMP was relatively unremarkable uh, with a creatinine of 1.35. His CBC had a white count of 15.6, but otherwise no anemia or thrombocytopenia. However, when his cardiac uh, biomarkers came back, his troponin I was elevated at 2.99 and his BNP at 626. So to summarize what we have so far, we have a 75-year-old man with a recent diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with some cardiovascular risk factors, who's coming in with what sounds like concerning typical chest pain that's been ongoing at rest. Blood work so far reveals that he has positive enzymes, and his EKG, as we discussed, shows that there's something going on with the myocardium and with the repolarization. So now is a good time to review what might be our differential for this presentation with chest pain. And I'd like to highlight that chest pain is a very frequent symptom in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In the current clinical scenario, the number one differential diagnosis, however, is ACS in the setting of plaque rupture and significant obstructive epicardial coronary stenosis. The second mechanism of chest pain in someone with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy could be in the absence of obstructive coronary disease, there could still be a supply-demand mismatch. The third cause could be potentially myocardial bridging, especially of the LAD, which is angiographically sometimes present in up to 15% of patients with HCM. This patient could have microvascular dysfunction. Another consideration is chest cardiomyopathy in view of his chest pain, elevator troponin, and EKG changes. Myocarditis is also another differential given an elevated white count, elevator troponin, and chest pain. Given recent hospital stay, PE or pulmonary embolism is also on the differential. What are the next steps in management based on that differential diagnosis? Thanks, Brenda. So, you know, at our outside hospital, certainly all of these conditions were considered, but given the leading concern in this elderly gentleman with risk factors concerning EKG and elevated troponin, uh, he was treated as ACS, loaded with aspirin, clopidogrel, started on a heparin infusion, as well as nitroglycerin, uh, and then transferred over to Rhode Island Hospital, which is the really the only tertiary care hospital in the state of Rhode Island and the uh, flagship medical center as part of our uh, hospital group. So Greg, that, that makes a lot of sense with this presentation. You're very concerned about ACS and you want to make sure you rule out MI. IV nitroglycerin is probably not the best choice in this patient. Now that we know that he has a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, because it may reduce preload and exacerbate any pre-existing LV outflow tract obstruction, most likely the outside hospital probably did not have that information while they were treating him. Great. So to move this gentleman's course forward, he is transferred from our community hospital to Rhode Island Hospital, where he lands in the critical care bay of our emergency department. Um, the way we operate in our program is that the general fellow for ACS, triages, STEMI, or NSTEMI is often the first on the scene. Uh, we're also really fortunate to have a dedicated echo platform to the fellows in the CCU and available for the rest of the hospital 24-7. So this fellow actually brought the machine down with him 
and in addition to doing the usual uh, transfer to the cath lab assessment and workup through the probon and took some pictures. Uh, these were notable for uh, new wall motion abnormalities in the anteroapical regions as compared to the report from a few weeks prior and with a marked reduction in his ejection fraction. And based off the outside hospital workup as well as our own data, uh, he was quickly brought into the cardiac catheterization laboratory uh, to see what was going on with his coronaries and his uh, hemodynamics. So, Greg, uh, that echo is very helpful in that uh, there are wall motion ab- abnormalities anteriorly and apically, you know, concerning for uh, coronary vascular territory, in particular the LED. So, giving you even more reason to make sure that you want to rule out uh, obstructive coronary disease. Yeah, guys, at this point, you've got a patient presenting with acute onset chest pain with a plethora of cardiovascular risk factors, STT wave changes on an EKG, a rising troponin, and wall motion abnormalities that match a vascular territory. It's time to take this patient to the table of truth, no? Absolutely. As everyone's really hammered home, our clinical suspicion is highest for an LAD infarct of some form here. Once we were actually in the cath lab and accessed and were up, we actually found that he did not have any obstructive coronary disease. He had some mild luminal irregularities throughout, but nothing that might acutely explain his presentation. When looking at the left, you can see, if you carefully go up and down the LAD, there's no evidence whatsoever of myocardial bridging, uh, which was also on our differential, as Verinda alluded to a little bit earlier. Uh, and lastly, if you take a little a closer look at the septal perforators, uh, you'll notice that there's pretty uh, marked compression there which also is consistent with our earlier suspicion and earlier diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Wait, hold on. I was almost sure this patient would have a plaque rupture event. He's clearly got an MI going on, but there's no obstructive coronary artery disease. And it makes me wonder about that nebulous term of a minoca. And so I have to wonder what's going on because that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. Something's going on. The patient's having symptoms. There's EKG changes. The troponin's going up. We have to figure this out. Yeah, I mean, that's great. And especially we've been building a case and we've been building a differential and up on the top of our list was a coronary plaque rupture, which was totally appropriate. And also we had to treat for that before we found out otherwise. And now that we're finding out that this is otherwise, some of the other things on our differential diagnosis start bubbling up. And especially since you can make the case through the physical exam and the ECG findings, especially those T-wave inversions that were surprising us and also, those wall motion abnormalities in the LED territory, maybe potentially this could be stress cardiomyopathy. So, Greg, I'm like at this point on the edge of my seat. Can you please tell us what you did next to tease out what's going on with this patient? Sure. So, we were wondering the same things. To get a better sense of what his hemodynamics were looking like, we went in and did a SWAN while still in the cath lab. And to give you a, a sense of his filling pressures, we can work anterograde through the system. His right atrium was two millimeters of mercury. His RV was 30 milligrams of mercury over 3, a pulmonary artery of 30 over 10, and a wedge pressure of 12. And then using those numbers, as well as his arterial and mixed venous saturations, we calculated a cardiac index of 2.4 liters per minute per meter squared, which is on the lower end of normal, but certainly not in cardiogenic shock. So as I'm sitting here and going over the the case, I just am so disappointed that despite all those PVCs he was having on his presenting EKG and on the telemetry earlier, that uh, we never actually got a Brockenbro tracing while we were in getting his invasive hemos. Uh, It's 
such a fascinating maneuver and one of my favorite in all of human dynamics. And so it's, I'm just wishing we had that for you, but we don't. That's so nerdy. We love it. Are you able to explain the Brockenbrough, uh, like what the tracing does? So the Brockenbrough sign is an invasive hemodynamic maneuver that is really helpful in terms of differentiating between fixed LVOT obstructions and dynamic ones. It hinges entirely on the physiology that happens on a beat after a PVC. So when you have a fixed LVOT obstruction, if you have a PVC, you will have a subsequent pause, and then you'll have your post-PVC beat. Now that beat has a lot more preload, and subsequently the systole has a lot more flow, and the gradient across that obstruction will increase, but you'll correspondingly see an increase in the pulse pressure on that beat, uh, which is what you might expect and what classic physiology teaches us. However, once you have a dynamic LVOT obstruction, uh, the picture changes a little bit. While you might think that the increase in preload for your post-PVC beat would actually improve your flow, which is something that we've talked about with our provocative physical exam maneuvers, where we want to increase the PVC. What actually happens is that there is a dramatic increase in contractility with that beat. And so paradoxically, it actually worsens the flow. Uh, We will see uh, with that post-PVC beat a really high increase in your LVOT gradient, but a decrease in your pulse pressure as that forward flow is unable to be transmitted to the aorta. So when distinguishing between the the two, the fixed versus dynamic outflow tract obstruction, if the pulse pressure after the PVC goes up, it's fixed. And if it goes down, it's dynamic. Greg, that is fantastic. And we're just so excited to see how nerdy you are about this Brockenrow Moro Bromwald sign. It just gets us really excited. The way I think about this is very similarly to you, but just to reiterate, think about the aorta's perspective, right? So you have this aorta that's past the aortic valve at, or the dynamic obstruction, whatever that physiology is before it, but the aorta doesn't know exactly what's going on in the heart. So it just sees a pressure that the ventricle generates plus the complications of uh, tight aortic stenosis or a dynamic obstruction. You know, in the regular case of aortic stenosis, you have, let's say, your soda bottle, right, is going to be your ventricle, and the cap is going to be your aortic valve, and we'll make a hole in the, in, the, um, in the cap to be our open aortic valve, but it won't be totally open like it, it is in the normal situation. It's going to be a significant stenosis that creates a gradient. You know, after that PVC, well, there's that compensatory pause, and now we're going to have a jacked-up squeeze that post-PVC really hyper-contractile squeeze. We are going to just generate higher pressures in the left ventricle that we didn't see the beat before. And that is going to translate into the aorta as higher pressures as well. The gradient might go up more because of some flow differences, but at the end of the day, the aorta is actually going to be seeing more flow and more pressure. And so the systolic pressure of the aorta is going to go up in some sort of relationship to the increase of systolic pressure that was in the ventricle. But now, when you have dynamic LVOT obstruction, it's a game changer when you start having that hypercontractile flow. So when that soda, we can't even use the soda bottle uh, example anymore because it doesn't really correlate with this dynamic obstruction. So rather, we just have to think about it as when there's going to be a super jacked up squeeze, that's actually going to increase the LVOT obstruction. So when we have SAM, systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, that pesky leaflet that we keep talking about is going to be more in the way. And that bulge, that septal annoying bulge is going to be more in the way, making that LVOT obstruction even worse than it was the beat before. And so the aorta does not 
care what's going on. But what it sees is that the pressure that reaches the aorta is actually going to be less. So even though there's a jacked up beat in the left ventricle, ultimately the aorta actually sees a lower pressure because the dynamic obstruction has gotten worse. And obviously we would have loved to see this and love to show the tracing because it's certainly cool. But some considerations as to why we may avoid that in this particular patient is that we know that the patient's apex is not beating well. And so there's a, there is a possibility that because of the stasis in the apex, there's a clot form now. And we know from our point of care ultrasound, which was just so critical to have done before this calf, and I'm sure they related the findings to the interventional team who was doing the study, that the apex wasn't moving well. And when the apex doesn't move well, there's a chance that there's thrombus formation from all the stasis. And therefore, in some of those cases, we may avoid putting in a pigtail catheter into the left ventricle to measure the hyperdynamic obstruction seen by the Brockenborough Broadway Morrow sign. And so that might have been the reason why they didn't go after that in this particular case. Yeah, thanks, Emmett. So I think at the conclusion of the cath, we're pretty confident that we're not dealing with a coronary issue. And our suspicion that we're dealing with a primary hemodynamic problem was kind of really entering the forefront of everyone's mind. So appropriately in this case, and as we talked about before, his nitroglycerin was shut off and he was admitted up to the cardiology service. Later that morning, he underwent a full comprehensive echo so we get a much better sense of what we're going on and to confirm the suspicion about the model we'd formed for the patient in our minds. So our echo showed, which correlated well to our initial fellow echo, that this patient had a severely reduced systolic function with an EF of 30%. This was driven primarily through extensive wall motion abnormalities with apical akinesis. As we had seen before, he had systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, resulting in mild to moderate mitral regurgitation. However, as compared to our earlier echocardiogram, where we had a resting gradient of 35 going up to 80, now his resting LVOT gradient was 100 and could be provoked up to 140 when the patient underwent Valsalva. Yeah, Greg, this is a really fascinating complex of diagnoses here because essentially what you're saying is this patient has apical wild motion abnormality that developed acutely with negative coronary obstruction. And as a diagnosis of exclusion, this sounds for all the world like stress cardiomyopathy or Takotsubo cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome or what have you. And in and of itself is enough to cause a hemodynamic compromise and a very concerning clinical syndrome that matches ACS. But superimposed on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is especially dangerous. One of the most profound cases I have ever had is when I was a first-year fellow in RCICU. And we had a patient who actually had a known diagnosis of Fabrace disease, who unfortunately was unable to get her enzyme replacement therapy because of insurance issues and fragmentation in care, a really important aspect of taking care of patients with these genetic syndromes. But she essentially had physiologically an HCM-type asymmetric hypertrophy with some degree of LVOT obstruction at baseline. She presented with acute chest pain, ST elevations, and acute cardiogenic shock. Coronary angiography was negative for obstruction, and so they were shipping her to our ICU in the context of a diagnosis of HCM, a phenocopy from Fabrase, a STEMI with negative coronary obstruction, and complicated cardiovascular shock on max norepinephrine, epinephrine, vasopressin, uh, and they, were, uh, they added a small dose of dopamine. And so she, when she got to us, uh, you know, I was kind of like, well, okay, what do I do now, right? Like, I have no idea what's going on. And so my senior fellows uh, walked me through doing a bedside echo, and we saw that her apex was just completely gone. It was not only hypokinetic, it was not akinetic, it was profoundly dyskinetic. And having lost 
function of her apex. And in this adrenergic surge of stress cardiomyopathy, her base, which is already obstructed at baseline, was profoundly hyperdynamic. And her gradient was, I forget what it was, but it was over 100. And so what we did, and thinking about shock management and in HCM patient, we started weaning down the positive inotropes to make that base less contractile. We started slamming her with fluids to distend open that LV so that way uh, the LVOT could open up a little bit more. And as soon as her hemodynamics started improving, we started slapping on some beta blockers to really decrease her heart rate so that we she would have more time to fill that stiff ventricle as well as to decrease the inotropy. And it was just like the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Within an hour or two, she was off all vasoactive infusions doing well. And so, you know, again, thankfully, this patient is doing okay to actually tolerate that nitroglycerin, surprisingly. But this complex or combination of HCM with dynamic obstruction plus stress cardiomyopathy, taking away that apical squeeze and really making the base even more hyperdynamic is just such a dangerous combination uh, and really terrific job in managing this patient. And moving forward, there are going to be some important things to consider. One is uh, guideline-directed medical therapy to improve that the LV function. It's a little bit unclear how, you, how long you continue that, whether or not this patient will warrant an ICD down the road, both because they have a weak ventricle now, it's probably too early because we'll have to see how the patient improves over the long run. And oftentimes these patients will improve. And then also preventing thromboembolism because with HCM itself, there's a higher risk for thromboembolism and then weak apex itself causes stasis and increased risk for uh, clot formation. And so there's so much to consider, but the pathophysiology hemodynamics are just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And it's worth restating again that like, you know, we are classically taught in medical school about hyperdynamic obstruction of the LV with with association with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But as Amit pointed out with this really riveting case, you know, stress cardiomyopathy with that setup does a very similar thing. And so when when you add that to Hokum, you could be set up for a serious situation where doing something like adding inotropy can be really deleterious. And then there are other conditions that also mimic it. Like, you know, just we just said that uh, the classic Takasubo or stress cardiomyopathy could set you up for dynamic obstruction. We also know that Takasubo is a, a diagnosis of exclusion. Really, we look for LAD territory, which can do that, especially if you have a long wraparound LAD and you have an obstruction in the LAD that basically takes out the anterior apex and a part of the inferior wall. You can have a setup which is similar to Takasubo, and that can also set you up for dynamic LVOT obstruction. So these are all things to consider in addition to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that has this setup. And when you have two on top of each other, it could be a real problem. And so the therapy is clear going forward. Dan, that's such an important point. And I think it's worth picking back on that and saying, folks, stress cardiomyopathy is a diagnosis of exclusion. You cannot diagnose it without a coronary angiogram. And I'll say that again, you cannot diagnose stress cardiomyopathy without a coronary angiogram. You have to make sure that there's no obstructive coronary disease that's causing the wall motion abnormalities. And classically, yes, a majority of patients will have the typical apical ballooning or apical akinesis, dyskinesis, but you can also have uh, mid-wall or mid-LV wall motion abnormalities. You can have rarely other segmental wall motion abnormalities. You can have biventricular dysfunction, and very rarely you can have isolated RV stress cardiomyopathy. And so The presentation can be varied, but again, you just cannot diagnose it without a coronary angiography. And when Amit means coronary angiography, he means either invasive or non-invasive, depending on the situation and your clinical suspicion for an acute plaque rupture or a coronary event. So Greg, history is very important in the evaluation of Takotsubos, both as far as cluing you in on the diagnosis as well as giving you a sense of prognosis. Uh, Could you tell us more about the potential triggers that are known to cause stress cardiomyopathy, and if this patient had any. 
Yeah, thanks, Brendan. So that's one of the really unusual aspects of this case. Typically, a stress cardiomyopathy has some identifiable trigger, be it a emotional or physical stressor uh, or some other type of medical illness, you know, very commonly seen in patients with intracerebral hemorrhage or stroke or even sepsis in the MICU. It's very common for us to find this, but in a small subset, and in the, this case, there's just never a stressor found. And believe me, when I say that we went up and down his history in the interval two weeks to try and find anything really that might give us some pointer, but ultimately we didn't find anything. You know, it's also very unusual for stress cardiomyopathy as it has a nine to one female predominance. Um, so there's a, it's some very unusual aspects when labeling him with a, a stress cardiomyopathy uh, diagnosis. Greg and Brenda, I'm, I'm really glad you guys brought up that, the point about the triggers and, and how important the history is. I think some of the best data on triggers for Takotsuba's cardiomyopathy comes from a paper published in Jack in 2018 by Godry et al. And this is data from the International Takotsubo's Re- Registry, which is a great resource for patients with Takotsubo's and providers taking care of patients with Takotsubo's. And it's an international registry of patients from Europe and uh, from centers from Europe and North America. And they really, in this paper, they broke down the triggers of Takotsubo's. And I think it's really important to think about this when you take care of these patients. So they identified as Greg, you had mentioned, three major triggers for stress cardiomyopathy. So the first one is the one that we classically associate with Takotsubo's, and that's that emotional stress that, you know, the death of a spouse, a death in the family, a breakup, that sort of thing, the broken heart syndrome. Um, And that's present in about 30% of patients with Takotsubo's. And these patients are much more likely to have that typical Takotsubo's presentation with the apical ballooning. But there's also 41% of patients who end up having a physical trigger. And the authors broke the physical triggers down into neurological triggers, which are about 8%. Um, And those uh, include, like you mentioned, Greg, intracerebral hemorrhages, uh, seizures that can lead to apical dysfunction. Um, And then there's the other physical activities. So whether it's running a marathon, a car accident, medical conditions that we often see in the ICU, sepsis, severe respiratory issues, or surgeries. But there is actually a significant portion of people that have no identifiable trigger. Um, so about 30% of the time, you're never able to find the trigger for, for Takotsubo's. And so that is probably where our patient uh, falls in. He falls into that 30% of people where we may not be able to find the trigger. And it's also really important to figure out, you know, what the trigger is because it has important implications for the, for the outcomes in these patients. In this paper, they describe that patients with emotional triggers, they have the best short and long-term outcomes. The authors compared outcomes of Takotsubo patients with age and sex-matched ACS patients. So patients with emotional triggers had the best short and long-term outcomes and better than age and sex-matched ACS patients. Acute neurologic stressors had the worst short-term prognosis. And, and that makes sense. You know, if you're having a large intracerebral hemorrhage, those factors are going to push you to have a, a, a worse prognosis than somebody with ACS. And physical triggers in general had higher mortality rates compared with ACS in long-term follow-up. And patients like ours who have no identifiable trigger, they're in the middle comparable to patients with ACS. And so I think another important point is that while we often think of stress cardiomyopathy as something that you know is transient, it, it has important implications on outcome, and it's not benign. You know, these patients in overall have similar outcomes to age and sex-masked ACS patients. Now we have this patient with, you know, a known diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, came in with typical sounding chest pain, positive enzymes, EKG changes, 
We did a cath and we didn't find any obstructive coronary disease. An echocardiogram has shown severe LV outflow tract obstruction um, and a new cardiomyopathy with anterior and apical and akinesis. And we're strongly suspecting stress cardiomyopathy. You know, there are other things on our differential as well that we want to want to differentiate. So what's the next step here? How can we further work this up? Yeah, exactly. That was on all of our minds when, when going through here. The clinical suspicion for stress cardiomyopathy was really foremost here, but as Dan and Amit have pointed out, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. We're very much interested in looking at myocardial tissue a little bit more in depth. So our next step here was actually to do a cardiac MR to both confirm our suspicions, point out the absence of ischemia, and see if we had missed anything, either on his initial workup from two weeks ago or from our current one. So ultimately, we ordered him for a cardiac MRI next. Similar to the echo findings, we saw that he had uh, moderately reduced global LV function with an EF of 32%, uh, and his RV was functioning normally. Uh, We saw the circumferential thickening of his left ventricle near the base, and again, just as we saw in the echo, really prominently involving the septum with a thickness of 24 millimeters. Always very nice when your uh, echo findings closely match with the CMR. Again, we saw his LVOT obstruction uh, with SAM and the mild to moderate mitral regurgitation. When we did the contrast studies, uh, we found mild patchy LGE consistent with the diagnosis of HCM, uh, and the enhancing volume was only 9%. I think it's important to point out what we didn't see. You know, we didn't see any signs of myocardial edema that might have suggested that he had an aborted MI that he reperfused. We also didn't see any signs of myocardial fibrosis, scarring that might have suggested a chronic supply demand mismatch, which is sometimes seen in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as well. Yeah, Greg, that MRI is very useful. You know, as you highlighted, the septal thickness is 24 millimeters. So that's important to note, especially when we think about moving further uh, about prevention of sudden cardiac death in these patients and how we risk stratify them. And with that, the 9% of late gadolinium enhancement, which is less than the 15% that we usually use. I think one of the other important points is that it kind of corroborated our echo in terms of the distribution of wall motion abnormalities. Uh, Sometimes in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you can see this apical aneurysm, typically in apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but rarely you can see it in other forms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as well. And the apex becomes aneurysmal, but it's usually very thinned out There's transmural late gadolinium enhancement, and we don't really see that here. This is much more consistent with the stress cardiomyopathy. And it's important to differentiate that because those patients with apical aneurysms have a much higher risk of sudden cardiac death. And and when we're talking about risk modifiers for when we're building the case to put in an ICD in these patients, it's really important to take into account. Yeah, see, and Greg, this is like super helpful because especially since this patient's coming in with two separate diagnoses that may or may not be tied together, you know, having the cardiac MRI really helps us say, wow, this is really, uh, may not be an Occam's razor unless the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was what gave him a lot of stress. And then he ended up having a stress cardiomyopathy on top of that. But the real point that I'm trying to make is that the, the MRI findings that you guys are describing is very helpful in terms of figuring out that there are two processes that are occurring at the same time on this heart. So the remainder of his course is actually quite simple. You know, he, with medical therapy, he stabilized quite nicely. He was quickly weaned off all of his IV medications. His ACS therapies were all stopped. And his metoprolol was sequentially increased until his heart rate couldn't tolerate it anymore. 
Uh, we had also stopped his diltiazem just for the classic concern of LV dysfunction. So ultimately, he only made it up to about 100 milligrams of metoprolol succinate uh, before we felt that was sufficient, both in terms of his heart rate and with in terms of improvement of his symptoms when walking around the floors. He was set up for a cardiac event monitor and was ultimately discharged to follow up with the cardiologist down in South County that had made his original diagnosis. So what follows is actually the patient's course over the next two months, which was graciously provided to us by his outside providers. That event monitor that we prescribed him actually revealed that he was having episodes of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and with that had asymptomatic conversion pauses that lasted up to eight seconds. As a result, his medications were actually titrated down, but he continued to have pauses, and ultimately he had a dual chamber pacemaker implanted out of the need for continued medical therapy for that indication. With that, his medications were titrated back up and he remained symptom-free. And really interestingly is that two months after all of this concluded, he had a follow-up echocardiogram, which showed complete resolution of his wall motion abnormalities and nearly no LVOT gradient. Wow, what a very interesting case. And that improvement of the left ventricular ejection fraction really helps us make that diagnosis as we've thought, basically, a superimposed stress cardiomyopathy on a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I'm, I'm very happy to hear that the patient's ejection fraction improved with medical therapy and that he's in great hands and has great follow-up. Hearing you guys talk about this case really excited us about cardiology. And this gives us an opportunity to ask you guys, what makes your heart flutter about cardiology? Like, why did you choose cardiology? And particularly, if you talk about what drew you to Brown for your training. Let me just say that I've always been fascinated with hemodynamics and pathophysiology. And like most others that share this same nerdy passion, there was really only kind of one direction you can take that. So I didn't always know exactly where I was going to end up, but through residency, as I just started to get more and more involved, I found that that's, I would jump out of bed on my cardiology rotations and stay up late reading. And it became pretty obvious. And the transition into fellowship has been pretty much the best choice of my life, frankly, because every day is such a blast with new things. So I chose Brown because clinical care is my first love. And Brown is just a tremendously fellow first clinically oriented program. The volume here is incredible. I I sometimes feel like I'm drowning in STEMIs uh, just because they're coming in so frequently. We're entrusted with a really incredible level of autonomy right off the bat. You know, my first cath case, I was in and did everything from start to finish on my own under the interventionalist guideline. And, you know, we're, we're expected to manage the patient first, do everything from their care. We, anything you could possibly want in our CCU from our own fluoro machines to do our TVPs in the middle of the night, to floating our swans, to doing our imaging our third-year fellows, if doing non-invasive, come out with thousands of echoes and, you know, I think like 400 TEs. And those going into cath did, you know, nearly a thousand diagnostics and however many interventions they did. Um, if you want to be clinically well-prepared when you leave, this is the place to be. Thank you for sharing that, Greg. I wanted to be a cardiologist towards the end of my critical care training. So as a resident, my first love was critical care. And I was in a two-year critical care program where I had the incredible opportunity of rotating in their CCU, their CT surgery ICU, and actually spending a month in their Ecolab. And that's when I was exposed to the diverse pathology, the fascinating hemodynamics, and all the cool stuff that cardiologists get to do. And one day, I just woke up wanting to be a cardiologist, and I decided to apply. And uh, one of the things that attracted me to the program at Brown was this incredible two plus one curriculum 
where we complete our clinical responsibilities in the first two years of fellowship. And the third year is for us to design as our own elective year. Um, you know, the first two years give us the opportunity to be exposed to the whole gamut of what cardiology has to offer. And even if you're undifferentiated, by the time you're a third year, you kind of have a sense of what you want to go into and you can use that time to get more elective time, spend time in the subspecialties that you're interested in. Thanks, Vernon Greg. On my part, I was interested in cardiology very early on, uh, in even maybe before medical school. My dad was a cardiologist, so I grew up surrounded by him, you know, talking about EKGs, heart murmur machines all over the house, him listening to, to cassettes of different heart murmurs. Uh, growing up in that environment, it was hard not to fall in love with cardiology. I fell in love, especially with EKGs and the electrical part of cardiology. I love procedures, and that's really why I'm pursuing EP. You know, my favorite part is still finding amazingly interesting EKGs and sending them to my dad to try to stump him, see if I can <laughs> I can get something past him that he's never seen before. Uh, honestly, I just love the, the vast amount of variety that, that we have in, in cardiology and all the different tools that, that you can use. In terms of why I picked Brown, I did my residency here, and I would be remiss to mention, you know, the amazing mentorship that we have here and just the great people in the field. Uh, that we get to work with on a day-to-day basis. From Dr. Pappas, who's our chair of cardiology and the president of ACC, amazing interventionalists like Dr. Abbott, Dr. Aronow, amazing EP departments, imaging. We have everything here and our, our faculty really care about us. They're the type of people that will really go to bat for you throughout your whole career. So if you want to practice in a very supportive environment where you really get hands-on training and amazing mentorship, Brown would be a perfect fit for you. Wow, I love that. See, that's amazing. I try to do that with my kids and cat films, try to make them uh, find the lesions and see if they can get one past me. But uh, it seemed, Verinda, Greg, what a treat to have you. This was such a great discussion. We really covered some basics to really complex principles. And you have really demonstrated a love for cardiology, a love for Brown. And I feel right there with you on this boat. And the last time we took a boat ride, I had fallen off, but I think this time Ahmed fell off. <laughs> so with that, we will wrap. Thanks again for your time. And thanks again for your generosity and expertise and joining the show. And now for the expert content review by our Associate Program Director, Dr. Catherine French. Dr. French is the Director of Women's Cardiac Center at Brown with expertise in cardio-obstetrics and echocardiography. As our phenomenal Associate Program Director, Dr. French has done a lot of work optimizing the educational curriculum for the fellows. I'd first like to thank the team at CNCR for putting together a fantastic educational case series. Our group at Brown is excited and honored to participate. I'll start with a very brief summary of the case. A man in his 70s with multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease, a recent diagnosis of hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy with a dynamic outflow tract obstruction who presented with chest pain concerning for acute coronary syndrome. A diagnosis of Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy, otherwise known as stress-induced cardiomyopathy, was made based on echocardiographic images, demonstrated the classical left ventricular apical ballooning pattern with a hyperdynamic base and no significant obstructive coronary artery disease on coronary angiography. The diagnosis was further confirmed on follow-up echo two months post-discharge, which demonstrated resolution of left ventricular regional wall motion abnormalities and normalization of left ventricular systolic function. 
This is a great multifaceted case which highlights how multimodality non-invasive imaging can play a critical and complementary role in the diagnosis and management of complex hemodynamic cases. I'll start with a few thoughts about his underlying diagnosis, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. HCM is typically diagnosed by echo and confirmed by cardiac MRI. The diagnosis of HCM by echo is made by identifying an unexplained maximum left ventricular wall thickness of more than 15 millimeters. In the most common form of HCM, maximum wall thickness is seen in the basal anterior septal wall. Echo is also useful in identifying and assessing accompanying features, such as systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, otherwise known as SAM, which often results in left ventricular outflow tract obstruction and mitral regurgitation. Advanced echo imaging techniques, namely longitudinal strain, has also been found to be helpful in confirming the diagnosis as well as risk stratifying patients for adverse outcomes. HCM patients have been shown to have reduced regional longitudinal strain in the mid-septum, which can be useful to differentiate them from hypertrophy from other causes, such as athlete's heart. Abnormal mid-septal strain, when added to the presence of non-sustained VT, has also been shown to be predictive of future events, more so than the presence of NSVT alone. So while still relatively new, we may see the clinical utility of advanced echo imaging techniques such as global longitudinal strain increase in the near future. Cardiac MRI is another important imaging modality for the diagnosis and management of HCM. Cardiac MRI complements echo in the diagnostic workup by confirming the maximum wall thickness, and it can provide additional prognostic information through contrast-enhanced imaging. We know that the histologic hallmark of HDM is hypertrophied myocytes in disarray with varying degrees of interstitial fibrosis. The MRI contrast gadolinium concentrates in the extracellular space, therefore the degree of late gadolinium enhancement correlates well with the amount of interstitial fibrosis and has been shown to be predictive of future arrhythmic events. The degree of late gadolinium enhancement can be helpful clinically when deciding to refer a patient for primary prevention ICD, maybe one who does not have the classic high-risk features, but whom you may still be worried about. So back to our case. We saw how echo and MRI were essential to confirming his HCM diagnosis, but we can also appreciate how useful both were in diagnosing and managing his current presentation. As Amit has correctly pointed out, Takatsubo's cardiomyopathy is a diagnosis of exclusion and requires an assessment of the coronary anatomy to exclude obstructive coronary artery disease. At this time, we do not have a non-invasive imaging modality that independently confirms the diagnosis of Takatsubos. The quote-unquote classical echo findings of left ventricular apical ballooning are consistent with Takatsubos or LAD disease, and since these two conditions have very different management strategies, a left heart cath is almost always indicated in the diagnostic assessment. There may be some subtle hints on echo, though certainly not diagnostic, supporting the diagnosis of Takotsubo's over coronary disease. The degree of regional wall motion abnormalities can sometimes be helpful. When wall motion abnormalities involve not only the apical, but also the mid-segments in a circumferential fashion, this may be more suggestive of Takotsubo's, as it involves more than one vascular territory. And because of the adrenergic surge that we see and is also likely responsible for Takotsubos, the basal segments tend to be more hyperdynamic when compared to the case of obstructive LAD disease, 
But again, these are generally not reliable and exclusion of obstructive coronary disease is still essential. Cardiac MRI may not be obtained as consistently in cases of Takotsubo's, though can certainly provide helpful diagnostic information, as was seen in this case. Most notably, the absence of significant late gadolinium enhancement helps to exclude other etiologies of left ventricular dysfunction. One theory that's been put forth for Takotsubo's involves coronary plaque rupture with spontaneous revascularization in the LAD. The absence of LGE affecting the subendocardium, a pattern classically seen in ischemia, effectively excludes the diagnosis of obstructive coronary disease. Regional left ventricular dysfunction can also be seen in acute myocarditis and typically demonstrates a pattern of mid-wall late gadolinium enhancement on MRI. The absence of this pattern seen on our patient's MRI makes myocarditis much less likely. So in my mind, this case clearly demonstrates the importance of non-invasive imaging in the diagnosis of HDM and Takotsubo, but what I think may be even more impressive in this case is the critical role that echocardiography plays in assessing hemodynamics. Echo provides the tools needed to identify the hemodynamic issues, clarify the mechanisms, and quantify the severity of these issues, which in this case was a severe dynamic left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Here we have two conditions, HCM and Takotsubo's. Both can independently cause hemodynamically significant left ventricular outflow tract obstructions. And this case nicely demonstrates that when both incur simultaneously, the risk for hemodynamic collapse has the potential for being exponential. Thankfully, the team caring for the patient was able to quickly identify the hemodynamic issues, which led to the appropriate tailoring of therapy and ultimately resulting in a good outcome for the patient. And now for all the applicants out there, I'd like to introduce our program director, Dr. Raymond Russell. Thank you. I am Raymond Russell, the program director for the Brown Cardiology Fellowship. I would like to congratulate Brenda, Asim, and Greg for a fantastic presentation of a very interesting, complex, and challenging case. I often say that one of the main goals of fellowship training is to help you learn to work outside your comfort zone when confronted with challenging diagnostic and treatment dilemmas. This case is a great example of such an experience. These experiences will help place you in a greater position as you start your career as an independent cardiologist. I would like to say a few words about the Cardiology Fellowship Program at Brown. There are several unique aspects of the program that I think benefit our fellows. First, there is a great diversity of patients that fellows are exposed to during the three years of their fellowship. This is enabled by our three training sites, Rhode Island Hospital, which is a tertiary referral center, the Merriam Hospital, which is a community hospital, and the Providence Veterans Administration Medical Center. Through these three campuses, our fellows are exposed to a wide variety of patients from various socioeconomic, racial, and ethnic backgrounds. They are also exposed to the full depth and breadth of cardiovascular disease. Another valuable aspect of our training program is the open structure to the third year of the program in which fellows are able to develop a curriculum that will help them achieve their training goals, be that in general cardiology, non-invasive imaging, interventional cardiology, electrophysiology, or heart failure. This open third year also allows fellows to concentrate their time on research projects or the ability to pursue an MPH. These training and educational opportunities are supported by our faculty with diverse interests 
that are all unified by a desire to teach and to mentor. Our faculty is also somewhat unique in that we have a strong representation in the leadership of the American College of Cardiology as well as the subspecialty societies. Our section chief, Dr. Athena Pappas, is the current president of the ACC. The director of electrophysiology, Dr. Dan Philbin, is the current treasurer of the ACC. Three of our faculty, including myself, are past presidents of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology. Dr. Herb Aronow is the incoming president of the Society of Vascular Medicine. Dr. Aronow, along with Dr. Don Abbott, are active in SKY. In addition, many of our faculty members are on the editorial boards of the major cardiovascular journals. As a result, Brown offers a unique environment for those trainees who are interested in becoming involved in leading cardiology through the cardiovascular medical societies and our faculty play a key role in providing not only the mentorship, but also the sponsorship for our trainees to move forward in these societies. The research opportunities at Brown cover the entire spectrum, from basic science through translational research to small investigator-initiated clinical studies to outcomes research utilizing large databases. And our faculty are always happy to have fellows join them in their research projects. These projects are supported by a strong biostatistics core that is available to all members of the Brown cardiology community. One more important aspect of the cardiology section at Brown is the collegiality and camaraderie that exist here. There is an amazing esprit de corps within our 18 core fellows and various subspecialty fellows. There is also a great supportive relationship between the faculty and fellows. An important factor to consider when pursuing fellowship training is the environment and lifestyle outside of the workday. The fellowship program is situated in Providence, Rhode Island, which is home to Brown University, Rhode Island School of Design, Providence College, and Johnson and & Wales. As such, while the city of Providence has been around since colonial times, you'll find a youthful energy and diversity that makes for a great place to live. People live downtown to get an urban experience, or they may live in one of the surrounding New England towns, or someone may live out in the countryside. Irregardless, because of the size of Rhode Island, the commute to the hospital is never more than 15 to 20 minutes. As Asim pointed out, there is sailing in the summer, and there is skiing in the winter, and other great activities to keep you occupied in the spring and fall. Providence area is indeed a great place to work and live. With that, I would like to thank the Cardio Nerds Group for this wonderful opportunity to showcase the talents of our fantastic fellows and to give everyone just a taste of some of the clinical cardiology that is available at Brown. The world of cardiology is actually surprisingly small in that you will continue to run into the same people throughout your career. I hope in the future I will get to meet some of those people that will listen to this podcast. Thank you very much. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the CardioNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team, 
for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karen Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S do and split. Sorry, there's, can you, there is a uh, motorcycle gang going by. Get everyone here. I can hear the dog barking. I can hear the dog barking, but this is going to make an amazing blooper. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) Wait, wait, is it a, a motorcycle gang or is it a dog?